Welcome back to the Inner Circle Podcast. Uh, my guest for uh, this episode is Miko uh, Hipponen, and I'm sure I've butchered that some, but I will uh, let him uh, let him correct me. Mm, yeah, well, thanks, Tony. It was uh, it was better than usual. That's what you get for having a Finnish name. Um, well, so so uh, tell everyone a little bit about um, uh, you know, I guess you know where where you work, what you do. Who you are? Mm. Yeah, well, I'm right now at Helsinki, Finland, which is where I work. Then again, I do spend more than 50% of my time somewhere else than in Finland. I, I have a very, very travel hectic job nowadays. It's my 28th year in the business. I, I started analyzing malware and tracking online criminals in 1991. So that's 28 years ago. And the fun fact is, and when I started doing this, I, I initially started when I joined this small startup company as employee number six, and I'm still working at the same company today. So I've, I've spent all my working life working at F-Secure, where I am working today. My title today is the chief research officer, and I've been through various different roles over these years. But nowadays, um, I'm mostly just a um, speaking head, um, going to meetings with customers and clients around the world doing board level briefings and executive team briefings and then speaking in different venues and conferences such as black hat two weeks ago all right well so we you know uh, we just got back from black hat or i mean it's been a week but you know black, black hat and defcon uh, are are still part of recent memory um and uh while we were there i was i was uh I did not have the opportunity to attend your presentation, but I was at a breakfast. God where damn I, it, I, Tony! You really should have been there. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll make it a priority next time. But I, but I heard through the grapevine that it was a great talk uh, about, uh, you know, basically, you know, when when, it, when is it okay for us to respond to a cyber attack with missiles? And so I'm just curious, in your opinion, how long is it until we're going to just uh, nuke North Korea? <laughs> I, I hope never. I hope we will never again see nuclear weapons used in a in in a used against another human being. But um, but I think it's a very very good point about about um, missing talks in Black Hat. Um, it's it's ridiculous how big Black Hat and DevCon have become. Um, when I was speaking on the first day of the conference on Wednesday, like you know, ten days ago, um, the um, there, there were eight there were eight tracks going on in those eight tracks there were three other talks that i would have gone to see if i wouldn't have been on stage myself so you miss a lot of content no matter how you how you dice it for example natalie silvanovich from microsoft was doing her uh, breaking story on how to hack iphones without even touching them or without users doing anything on them at the same time when i was doing my talk and i was initially expecting that i'm going to have an empty audience i did have the room wasn't completely full, but it was close. I'm guessing I had a thousand people in my talk alone. That's how big Black Hat is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, when I was planning right to, to, to go, I, I came in on Tuesday, I left on Friday, but um, so in my head, it was a four-day thing. And it was after I got to Vegas, that I was like, well, wait a minute. I got here like basically Tuesday evening and I'm leaving Friday morning. So I really only have Wednesday and Thursday. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I was booked with uh, you know I had thing, things to do um, you know to uh, promote um, uh, the booth for Alert Logic uh, as my day job. It's like why why I was there. So I had I had uh, that was my my top priority. And then I had uh, uh, you know various vendor meetings and wanted to attend various sessions. And uh, it, all of a sudden I looked at my calendar and I was like, there is way too much stuff to do in the next two days. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. And it takes forever to walk from one talk to another. It takes forever already in Black Hat. Uh, and then DEF CON actually was in four different hotels at the same time, which is yeah. just insane. I can't even really imagine that. I mean, I, I, I had some... So when I was planning my meetings, uh, initially we were just blocking time. You know, it was like, you know, it was, I would say, okay, Wednesday at 1.30, yeah, that's good. And then someone else would say, okay, well, how about Wednesday at 2? And I'd say, oh, sure, that's good. You know, because mm-hmm. normally that would work <laughs> if I was doing calls from home or something. And then after the fact, we filled in the blanks with like, well, where are we meeting? And then, then things got challenging. The, the logistics of getting from point A to point B got challenging because I'd have a meeting in the press room and then my next meeting would be in a suite in the Four Seasons. And then I'd have another meeting in the press room and then my next meeting would be in a suite in the Mandalay Bay. And then the right. next meeting would be at the vendor booth. And so, yeah, I had to, you know, basically all of my 30-minute meetings ended up being more like 20 minutes with a sprint in between. Yeah, well, you do a 15-mile jog every day. That's good for your health. Yeah. <laughs> the good news about DEFCON, though, is that they will be moving it next year to a brand new place, which I understood is still being built, which is the Caesars Forum in huh. Caesars Palace or right next to Caesars Palace. So it's going to, going to go back to one place only, which is which is probably going to be good. So we'll see. Yeah, because I didn't stay for DEFCON, but I've gone to uh, AWS reInvent the last couple of years, and AWS is spread across hotels, like almost all the way down the strip. Like the main like vendor hall is at the Sands, but they have things going on at the MGM, mm, and yeah. they have a shuttle that goes between everything. But you still have to count that into your your schedule, where the, you, know, you have to you have to add a forty five minute shuttle ride. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I actually had a car all throughout the week, uh, which is ridiculous because everything is on the same road. But you know, I've had my problems trying to get a get a cab or trying to get a, uh, a you know any kind of ride from one place to another. Sometimes it's just impossible. Plus, it had it had the great upside that it was very easy for me to leave the strip and go to Pinball Hall of Fame whenever I wanted, which is like you know, fifteen or ten minutes away from the strip, which is where I spend my downtime. Awesome. Um, all right, so let's 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 start off um, with your talk. Uh, mm. You know, for those for those of us who couldn't fit it into our schedule or weren't in Las Vegas, uh, you know, give us give us the podcast version of your talk. Sure, sure. I've been fortunate enough that for the last couple of years, um, Black Hat has actually invited me to talk. I haven't needed to go through the the uh, CFP process. I did the um, uh, CISO Summit keynote last year in the Black Hat Europe. I did the main keynote in Black Hat Asia in Singapore in February. And now um, this time around, I, I was doing a, a regular talk with the title Responding to a Cyber Attack with Missiles. And I was speaking about what exactly is shaping the world around us when it comes to governmental attacks and where exactly is the border between real world and, and, if you will, cyber world. Um, And I think we are crossing lines more and more frequently. I I do believe the first important line we crossed was Stuxnet 2010. There's time before Stuxnet and then time after Stuxnet. First major operation where the attackers must have understood that when they destroy physical gear with cyber attacks, there is risk for life. People could die as centrifuges start exploding with uranium gas inside of them inside Iran. Now, we don't know. We, we don't believe anybody died. But of course, the possibility, the likelihood uh, is there. And right. I think we cr- crossed some kind of a line, you know, we as a mankind crossed some kind of a line when we did that. What I mentioned during my talk was that nuclear physicists lost their innocence in 1945 when we, for the first time, used the power of the atom for destructive purposes. And if that's true, then exactly in the same way, computer scientists lost their innocence in 2010. And since then, we've seen more and more escalations dimming the line between what's cyber and what's real world. And it's only going 
to be more confusing. More and more of our real-world systems, obviously, are being controlled by computers. Um, OT systems in every single factory, factory automation systems, ICS systems, Internet of Things, everything around us which uses electricity, if not already today, in very near future, will be connected to some kind of networks. If not real TCP IP internet, then you know, low ray radio networks or, or uh, Sigfox or you know, 5G, which is becoming very real very quickly. Everything will be online. There will be no difference between real world and cyber world. Then I spent quite a while discussing what happened earlier this year uh, between Israel and, and the attack they did against Hamas, which was a physical missile strike against cyber operations center of Hamas. And that seems to be a very clear case where you have, a, a well, concretely responding to a cyber attack with missiles. And, and again, I do think we crossed some line right there earlier this year, in February, when this happened. But then again, um, the major problem in responding with real-world power to cyber power is attribution. And there, there was no attribution problem. Like when you have a foreign nation state uh, attacking your critical infrastructure, the, the biggest problem you have is that who actually did it and how can I prove who did it so I know how to retaliate. There was no problem like that in that particular attack. Hamas, of course, has been doing all kinds of attacks against Israel for years and years. Israel has responded before with missiles to, for example, propaganda centers of Hamas. So, again, propaganda isn't directly killing anyone, just like cyber attacks are sort of hard to measure in the real world effect. Um, and in that sense, there is no difference. We, we end up in much bigger problems when you look at attacks where you really don't know for a fact who is attacking you or someone might be misleading you on purpose on who's attacking you, which would be what we call false flag attacks. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I could see it totally being used that way. I mean, because, I mean, to your point, I mean, attribution is uh, is an ongoing challenge. Um, you know, I think a lot of times, uh, and I can't name the attacks, but, you know, over the last five to ten years, it's like the, you'll, you'll see an attack and immediately or, or somewhat immediately someone will be like, oh, it was China or it was North Korea or. Um, I mean, like the, the, the Sony attack, I think, is a good one to, to, to look sure. at where it's like, you know, there were you know, certainly signs that suggest that it could be North Korea. There was, you know, some some logical reasons you might think it would be North Korea, but then there seemed to be other elements of it where, you know, maybe it wasn't. And mm. and if I if I'm a cyber attacker, uh, if I'm if I'm a bad guy, um, you know, I, I I might intentionally try to you know go out of my way to figure out, okay, well, what what are the kind of Conventions and and syntax that you would normally see in a in, a, in an attack from North Korea. You know, let let me just embed that into my attack to throw everyone off the track. Sure. Um, and in some cases, uh, the, you might want to intentionally uh, sow that chaos. You know, like you, if you're if you're another nation state, you might want to be like, hey, wouldn't it be fun if I just set up a little you know proxy war between North Korea and the United States? Sure, that's exactly what's what's happening. And and these there are actual co concrete documented examples of that happening. And that's that's why what makes makes it so hard um, to, to, to react, especially when it's not a case of active warfare. Um, most of the governmental attacks we see are not about waging war, it's not about sabotage, it's about spying. That's the vast majority of governmental activity. In fact, we can take every single governmental case since 2002 or 2003, when, when we started seeing governmental attacks for the first time, and we can divide all of those cases into two different groups. They're either um, spying or sabotage. And of course, extreme sabotage during crisis and conflict is, is warfare, but basically, you know, trying to destroy things. Um, there's only really one um, outlier, you know, between or outside of these groups of, of spying and sabotage, and that's North Korea, where they try to steal money. It's the only government which is so broke that they're willing to resort from, from, from stealing from other governments to fix their budget deficit, which is really, really unique. And there's no other government like, like them. But, but in that sense, it's, it's, um, 
it's it's quite clear that the vast majority is about stealing information, not about destroying anything or doing any kind of sabotage or doing warfare. But when there is war, let, let's say Russia and Ukraine, um, when Russia, when you see attacks against Ukrainian critical infrastructure uh, in the middle of a conflict where Russia is trying to attack you in all the other domains already, when they are attacking you on land, on sea, in space, in air, and in cyberspace, then of course you can return the cyber attacks with real-world attacks. You know you are in conflict with them already, and you know cyber domain is no different. Well, it is different, but it, it is part of the spectrum of the war. And and I also discussed this with the audience in, in Black Hat quite a bit about how the domains are different. In fact, in fact, Jeff Moss, the founder of Black Hat, mentioned this in his very beginning notes, how cyber domain, yes, it's one of the domains for conflict, one of the domains for war, but it is different from the other domains. And I do agree with him. However, it's also very important to realize it's not the last domain. I mean, we have five different domains where we wage war. And when we have an active war like Russia, Ukraine, they, they happen in all of these domains, but there will be more. There will be a sixth domain. There will be a seventh domain. Technology shapes the domains where we find our wars. Initially, we only had land war because we didn't have technology to fight on sea or fight on air. Then we did, and we expanded. And it's interesting to think what the next domains would be. It, it's actually quite a, quite hard uh, because it's, whatever you can imagine is going to be very science, science fiction-like. Um, so, for example... The next domains for war and conflict could be something like um, DNA warfare or nano warfare. Nano warfare could, for example, mean that you would spread airborne nanobots on enemy soil, which would enter the bloodstream of your enemy's soldiers, go into their brains and change their thoughts, which, yes, does sound very much like science fiction. Then again, Cyber warfare sounded like science fiction just 20 years ago. Right, because you know, like you said with the with DNA, it's like as we as 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 they play around more and more with uh, CRISPR technology and kind of like you know in, you know intentionally manipulating DNA sequences. Uh, you know, I can I can foresee a science fiction uh, uh, attack domain and you know in the future where you have sort of a. Uh, you know, poison the well or supply chain type attack, where it's like I go in and I mess with your 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 root image that you think you know that you're building from, and uh, you know cause you to you know mess up everyone's DNA. Yep. The good news is that we'll probably be retired or dead by the time this happens, so we <laughs> yeah. don't have to fix fix that. If you can try to fix something around this this cyber domain, that would be good enough. But even there, I think we are in the very beginning of this arms race. If you look at nuclear arms race, nuclear race went on for 60 years. Uh, it's not even even today completely behind us, of course, but it, it went on actively for 60 years. I think cyber, cyber arms race is going to be the next 60 years or 50 years at least, which means we're still years and years away from, you know, cyber disarmament or, or discussing rules of war for cyber war, any of that. It's still, right now, everybody's just expanding both defensive and offensive capabilities. And the thing that really makes cyber weapons different from from any traditional weapons is is that uh, they're, they're hard to hard to gain deterrence power from and what i mean by that is that if you build tanks then you can just have military parades and show your tanks if you build nuclear weapons you can do nuclear weapons testing to show your enemies that you have nuclear weapons but how do you show your cyber skills how do you show your offensive cyber skills and, and demonstrate them and, 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 and get deterrence power from them. And that's something that we actually haven't seen done by, by any nation yet. And this is, this is quite important. It really shapes the nature of the conflict because just like real weapons, cyber weapons rust. They don't work forever. They rust away. They have expiry dates. Most you know, offensive tools in cyber domain rely on exploits. Exploits target vulnerabilities. Vulnerabilities in our systems are not there forever. Eventually, systems change and your vulnerabilities or your exploits no longer work. Uh, hardware changes. Operating systems change. The bugs are found and fixed. 
and then your your weapon no longer works. So you have this limited time when your weapon works. Um, so you spend all this money to build these new types of weapons, and they only work for a limited window of time. And if you don't use them during that time, you'll get no value out of them. And nobody even knew you had them. You never showed them in a military parade to anyone. You got no deterrence power and no utter return on your investment at all, which sort of drives us to a world where it's becoming more likely weapons like these end up being used just to get some return on the investment putting putting into them to build them. And I, of course, I'm not saying countries would start fights just to use the weapons. Of course not. What I am saying is that when, when militaries have weapons at their disposal and they know they won't work for much longer, they might just, you know, pass them on to intelligence agencies, for example. And, you know, we have this exploit which works against, you know, Windows 10, which is going to go out of fashion pretty soon now. You might want to use this for some, some of your work. So it actually makes it more likely um, weapons like these end up being used because there's very little deterrence power they, they provide. And if you don't use them, then they get no, no use for them at all. Well, and what's interesting, too, about the, the scenario you just described is that that's, sort of, you know, that's unique to cyber in that, mm-hmm. in that if the United States Army happened to have a certain kind of bomb that, you know, all of a sudden there was a way for every, all, of our, all of our, you know, potential opposing nations to uh, actively defend against. And we were like, well, the, the, the timeline for us to use this is, is running out. That's not the kind of thing that you would just walk over to the CIA or the NSA and say, well, here, if you would like to blow anything up, you might want to use this. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. It's an interesting world. It's, it's, and it's quite different from, from the traditional world, but um, it clearly is an arms race. So, so basically, these, these are the topics that I was, was covering in my talk. So it was very, very interactive and plenty of questions. And that's the good part about Black Hat. You have basically everybody in the same city for a week and uh, and all the discussions you can have around any topic that you're interested in are really world class and and that's what brings me back to 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 vegas every summer yeah well yeah, so early on you talked about how you know we crossed the line with with stuxnet because you know because that attack like whoever did it and whoever launched it had to know there was at least the potential for human loss mm-hmm. um and that and that is a line, and that is different. I was going to say that in general, I think I, I, I what I see is sort of nation states uh, going along sort of the same evolutionary path as traditional criminals, where it's like all of a sudden you start to figure out, well, there are things I can do that I've been doing for decades um, mm-hmm. in person. You know, I had to actually send a body to go do that. Um, you know, and whether it, whether it's robbing a bank or spying on an enemy nation and all of a sudden you go, well, wait a minute, I can do this like from the comfort of my basement and yeah. there's very little risk. Like I'm, I'm not going to, I'm, you know, no one's going to be able to kill me <laughs> for yeah. doing this, you know, even mm-hmm. if they could catch me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's one additional thing, um, not in the near future, but in a little bit more distant future. Um, imagine what the possibility of strong AI during our lifetime would do to arms race. Um, I mean, j- just imagine for, for a moment that, you know, a country or a company would make the announcement that, you know, we are on the verge of a breakthrough. We believe we will have strong superhuman intelligence at our disposal with the systems being built within the next six months. Well, other countries would immediately realize that, you know, if that country or if that company in that country gets that capability, it's going to be game over. If they get superhuman intelligence, we will lose every competition from now on forever. They will be superior in everything. They will be superior in technology, in sales, in research and in combat. So no matter what, we have to steal that technology. And if we can't steal it, we have to destroy it. So I believe that strong AI, if it ever were to become reality, would actually, you know, create conflict instead of defuse any conflict. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's entirely possible. 
Um, so, you know, in in your view and in 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 the, in the talk that you gave, uh, you know, what is your personal answer to the question? Like, is it is there is there a situation in your mind where it would be okay to retaliate physically for a cyber attack? Yeah, it's okay to return cyber to you know to return a cyber attack against you with missiles if you are in the middle of a conflict and there are other things happening in addition to cyber attack as well and if it's obvious who the attacker is so like the so, the example you gave with Russia and the Ukraine is like you know you're you know you're already basically at war with this country mm-hmm. yes that's that's for example i think ukraine had every right to return um the Petya attack or the uh, the energy sector attacks with missiles back against Russia. I think that's 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 uh, that's a fair game. So yeah, I think we are we are in that time already. Okay, but but to go back to the attribution element, uh, when you have an attack like like the Sony attack, where you know, depending on who you ask, you know, you've got 50% of the cybersecurity community says absolutely it was Korea and the other 50% going, eh, you know, that that's maybe, that's maybe a time you don't want to launch missiles at North Korea. Yep. Yep. That's right. And it's the, even, even then the attack uh, wasn't probably something that you would want to retail. I mean, if the same damage to Sony would have been done with something else than cyber, you probably wouldn't retaliate with missiles anyway. Right. So you have to have proportionality, of course, here, and probably more here than in any traditional attacks. But when do- someone does a cyber strike where people die, I I don't see any reason why you couldn't return if you know who you are returning the missiles to with missiles. So, yeah, that's where we are, are today. All right. Um well, as we you know, as we started off with, you know, I mean, you know, Black Hat is a little bit of a whirlwind. There's a, a lot going on in just a short time span, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and it's in Las Vegas. And, and and like we said, at least Mandalay Bay is the you know the focal point of uh, of Black Hat. And so it's like you don't you don't necessarily have to navigate your way back and forth up up and down the strip. Um, so it is somewhat concentrated. Um, but even even if you just have to get from one end of the Mandalay Bay to the other, I mean that that's a, that's an exercise in, a, in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, all that to say, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of sessions, and uh, basically it's not it's not really possible to get to everything. I know that I did I had situations um, where I looked at the calendar and I said, all right, I want to go to this session. I also might want to see the other two, and some of them repeat. And so like if you do your homework, you can you can. And go okay. Well, I'll just go see that on another day. But most, for for the most part, for me, what I do is I say, well, I hope they're recording that, and I can watch it, you know, on you know, watch the stream next week or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a couple of talks that I saw which I found really interesting. I I know that the headlines um, picked up some of the talk. Well, there were really two talks on deep fakes, and and the first one of them really made the headlines because it was about research, where uh, researchers were using mice to detect deepfakes. And yes, I do mean real physical mice. Um, this was about detecting um, uh, faked voices, because it turns out mices or mouse animals are really good in detecting uh, differences between human voices and being able to tell the difference between a fake voice and a real voice. Um, but I didn't find that as interesting as the talk I saw about detecting deepfake videos. This was a talk given by by uh, two researchers where they had multiple different mechanisms they had built over the years in, in trying to detect whether a deepfake video is a deepfake video or not. Funnily enough, the first prototype they built worked like a charm um, because it only tried to detect if the person in the video was blinking or not. Hmm. Yep, because you know early deepfake videos did not blink. And it's also a great example on how it's a game of cat and mouse. Of course, as this detection or this became known, deepfake videos started blinking. They all blink today, but in the beginning they did not. Um, the mechanism that sounded promis- promising to me right now is that uh, every camera, whether it's a you know film camera or a, a mobile phone, uh, has sensors, light sensors in the camera which are unique, and they create artifacts. Basically, you know, 
error in the video feed. And when you shoot a real video, you have the same signature error in every frame of the video. Uh, at most extreme, you could imagine that you would have a blank big pixel in your camera. And of course, that blank pixel would be the same pixel, dead pixel in every frame of the video you shoot. Right. When you look at the deep fake video, you have different artifacts in every frame. And this actually is something you can detect. And that's that's quite interesting and probably very powerful because we definitely will need technical measures to be able to tell the difference between an original real video and a deep fake absolutely um and you know it, it's sort of it's amazing to me how you know how that technology has evolved and, and you know some of them are very realistic i mean a lot a lot of them that i've seen if you just pay attention even you know they're not so great but mm. but the technology is there and so like you know to go back to talking about like you know nation states or very highly you know well-funded cyber criminals could probably pull it off to make something that looks very realistic. Mm -hmm. um, one 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 uh, uh, issue, challenge, whatever that that I see with it is, even if we can uh, develop technology that on on a technical level where we can say, okay, look, we can we can tell that's not real. Mm -hmm. um, is that a we have to then get the Facebooks and the YouTubes or whatever to fully you know, to, 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 to implement that and mm -hmm. to implement that and and act on it or mm -hmm. you know because because the the flip side of it is right now with you know just just not deep fakes but just just fake news just fake headlines just fake stories fake you know images no not 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 videos but just those things are, they're not very well done. I mean, there a lot of them are crap. <laughs> like it, yep. you look at it, and at face value, you know that it's ludicrous, and that, that and, and that it's it's insane that 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 anyone would believe that would happen. And yet, you know, we have you know the twenty sixteen election in the United States. We have Brexit. We have you know Brazil. Mm -hmm. It's like people around well, the I mean, around the world are getting works. fooled by these things. Yeah, it's, it's real it easy sucks. to fool people. Yeah, that's that's the downside. It's too easy to fool people. Your deep don't have to be do good. Of course, if you would have good enough technology to automatically detect deepfake videos, YouTube, Facebook, and other platforms could just filter them without prevent them from getting uploaded in the first place, which which would clearly help. Uh, however, I also want to highlight here that you know this technology isn't just bad; it can be used for good. I mean, the, when you look at demonstrations of current uh, the, the, the cutting edge technology for uh, taking a face and using it. On, a, on another human's body, I can totally see a time in the near future where you rent a video from Netflix and before you start to watch it, you can select the actors and then it renders it for you in real time. Yeah, well, I, I, early on, I, one, of, one of the thoughts that I had was, uh, actually two thoughts. One was that they could start doing movies um, with dead actors. You know, you'd be like, you know, what if what if we wanted to make another Humphrey Bogart movie? Right. You know, and, and, you know, and you could just do that because you'd have the technology. The other is, you know, sometimes you see I've seen a couple times going around uh, the thing where there's like a series of pictures of, like, say, 50 different faces. And then it says, you know, none of these faces are actually real. They were all created by AI. Mm -hmm. And if I'm a movie studio, if the technology gets to a certain point, I could say, you know what? Maybe instead of paying, you know, Jennifer Lawrence or Chris Pratt or Nicolas Cage or whoever, I can just create an AI actor that's very close to them and I can save all kinds of money. Hmm, interesting. Uh, or, or, or even better, don't, don't just clone an existing superstar. Generate a new superstar. Perfectly right. beautiful lady or handsome man. Make him a superstar. You don't have to tell the audience he's not real or she's not real. This actually possibly could be done in the near future so it's huh well especially like, there, there was, i i'm not I, i'm i'm gonna talk about something i i don't know enough to to give names or whatever but i recall there being a very 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 popular uh like pop star in japan that's just mm -hmm. an ai construct like it, she True. doesn't exist yes yeah, yeah. yes I've, I've seen that but it's obvious she's not real but right right but i'm saying but yeah so so that that is already there as like a foundation uh -huh. and now uh -huh. if you could take that and turn it into something that by all accounts looks and sounds absolutely real you could you yeah. know, you could totally pull that off 
Yeah, and just start shooting like you know full budget Hollywood movies with a new leading star, and she would or he would become very very popular. Of course, that's an interesting idea, and they would own all the rights. They could make as many movies with him or her as they'd like to. Huh. Well, well, we'll see. Another talk I want to mention um, that I saw in 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 Black Hat was uh, uh, Kimberly Zentz. Um, Kimberly has been around for, for, for a long while. She used to work at iDefense. Now she works in Germany for a German security company. And she was speaking about the, the Russian security uh, or, or um, well, basically FSB and GRU and the infighting that goes within the security services of Russia and how that links to our field, InfoSec, and especially to Kaspersky Lab. And within Kaspersky, especially the case of Ruslan Stoyanov, um, who was charged for treason, and the backstory is fascinating. Um, I know Kimberly, I know Ruslan. These two met in uh, Microsoft DCC conference in Montreal um, eight years ago. Ruslan gave a CD full of information about cyber criminals to Kimberly, and that's basically why Ruslan was tried for treason. For, for uh, uh, you know, working against the Russian government, and he actually was sentenced to 14 years of prison in Russian prison earlier this year, which is which is remarkable. Um, and, and this whole backstory on how multiple generals within FSB has been tried and sentenced, and how this uh, Kaspersky lab leader. Uh, I mean, he was running the, the investigations um, department of Kaspersky, was charged and put into prison for something which, for all purposes, doesn't seem like a crime to begin with, is is fascinating. And of course, Russia believes Kimberly is a CIA spy, but she told the audience that, no, I'm not a spy, and I actually believe her. <laughs> I mean, yeah. There's a lot of interesting stuff there, and I know you know there was another thing that I didn't I didn't get to see, but I know that there was a presentation about, and actually I don't even remember if it was at Black Hat or DefCon, but there was a presentation about basically being able to hack the Boeing seven eighty seven. I saw that. Yeah, that was in in Black Hat. That was Rubens and Marta. Yeah. So I mean, and 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 you know that, that Black Hat and DefCon seem to always be fun for at least at least one of those. Either you know we're hacking a Jeep, we're hacking an insulin pump, we're hacking an ATM machine. And yes, I know it's redundant to say ATM machine, but you know there it is. <laughs> yeah, Ruben had interesting comments about the Boeing case. The backstory was that he happened to find the firmware images for the seven eight seven Max eight plane. And obviously, he did not have hardware where he could test his findings on, but he found a bunch, like 20 different vulnerabilities from different parts of the system, uh, including mechanisms on how he could jump from one system to another, um, which is exactly the thing you don't want to happen inside a plane. And then when he reported all these findings he had to Boeing, basically Boeing responded immediately saying that, yep, you know, we've... um, these are all valid reports, but our compilation system has mitigations in place, which makes all of these uh, non-functional. So none of these are a risk. Carry on. And there's no easy way to really prove them wrong. Unless, unless you, you actually go on a live flight and try to take it down, there's no way to prove it. Don't do that. Don't do it. <laughs> so, yeah, that was uh, that was a very good talk. In- interesting. And, and, and uh, it, obviously... Aerospace security is a hot topic, and it's much more complex than what it looks like from the outside. One thing that makes it so complicated is that um, planes are fairly unique and custom-made for different airlines and have different kinds of systems and security uh, systems in place as well. But uh, I fly every week, and I really hope planes have uh, the best security systems they can have. Yeah, well, one of the things that... uh... I've talked about fairly frequently when it comes to uh, IoT security is the headlines, you know, it, it, it makes for fun headlines to talk about like the James Bond doomsday scenarios of, you know, mm-hmm. a- annihilating entire countries and stuff. But 
in some ways, I feel like it almost takes away from real discussions about the actual threats. Um, like, mm -hmm. so like in this case, it's like, you know, do these vulnerabilities exist? Yes. Might it be possible to take down a 787? Yes. Um, or run a Jeep off the road or, you know, mm -hmm. kill someone, kill someone by hacking their insulin pump like those. But those all are like just outside the realm of real world everyday attacks. And, and, yeah. and so, again, they make good headlines and, and it has that James Bond doomsday scenario feel to it. But there's a lot of other like very real ways that you can be affected <laughs> that, 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 that and then get sort of ignored because we're busy talking about these like, you know, kind of uh, supernatural scenarios. Sure, sure. Of course, these problems should be fixed, but nobody's going to drive your car off the road to kill you. It's just not going to happen. I mean, the kind of attacks that actually do happen in the real world are typically are the kinds of attacks where you can make money. So nobody's going to hack you your car to drive it off the road. Someone's going to hack your car to open the door and steal it. That makes much more sense. I also had a conversation, actually, to kind of tie that together, uh, an earlier episode of uh, this podcast. Um, I, I want to say it was with someone from IOActive, but we talked about uh, the idea of ransomware expanding to that. Like if I can, in, instead of encrypting your data, what if I can encrypt your Tesla hmm. and make it so that, you know, you can't use your car unless you pay this ransomware? I hate the way you think. <laughs> Um, and, 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 it, and it comes down to, you know, you know we, we talk a lot uh, about, you know, should you pay the ransomware? Shouldn't you pay the ransomware? Um, and I, I don't have a solid answer to that myself. I feel like everyone I ask has a different opinion on that. Some, some people are very purist and like, absolutely, you should never pay the ransomware. And other people are like, you know, if you look at just the cities in the United States that have been uh, victims of ransomware attacks, and, you know, Baltimore, Maryland stood on principle and said, well, no, we're not paying this ransomware, but subsequently have ended up paying like 18 or 19 million dollars to try to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. Whereas go. Florida, you know, the cities in Florida were like, oh, you want six hundred and fifty thousand dollars? Sure. <laughs> Here, take it. Um, you know, we can get back up and back up and running in, in, in a matter of hours. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can totally see them doing that, but of course they shouldn't because it only makes the problem worse. The more we pay the ransoms, the more there will be attacks. Right. And I remember when ransomware first became a thing thinking that it was a very, very clever business model because mm -hmm. um, at least initially I felt like they were asking for amounts of money that were very well thought out. Like it was high enough to be painful but low enough to be possible. Like if they hacked my computer and, and, and you know, if I had, if I had a ransomware attack and they were like, well, you need to pay us a million dollars. I'd be like, well, guess we're done now. <laughs> you know, yeah. but if they ask me for a thousand dollars, then I'm like, eh, I don't really want to give you a thousand dollars, but I kind of want my data back. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and then the other part of it being that they did follow through because as soon as you have to start having ransomware attacks where they either don't give you the key to unlock your data Mm -hmm. or or whatever or you know so if they ask for too much money or they don't give you back your data the model breaks like the model only works people are only willing to pay because they know that there's a there's a a, a history of integrity there where if i do pay you you are going to give me my data back ransomware gangs absolutely hated wanna cry and petya because they are the two best-known ransomware cases in history, and they're both examples of cases where paying did not help you. Vast, vast majority of, of ransomware gangs will help you. They will get your files back. They will even help you get your files back. They need a good reputation. But the two biggest cases in history, both were examples of the opposite. So they, they really must must hate the idea. So, yeah, that's, that's the way it goes. And this um, negotiation of the right amount of money is interesting when you look at these new new school ransomware gangs like, like Locker Goga and Mega Cortex, which do targeted attacks. They pick their victim, they you know, infiltrate the network, they spend weeks in the network doing lateral movement, then they encrypt everything in one go. And when they do that, they don't ask you to pay coins to get your files back or to get your data centers back, they will just leave their contact information and, and a note that, you know, please get in touch. Let's negotiate. Yeah. 
Well, and in those cases, too, it, it also negates part of what my philosophy was early on, which was, you know, we'll have your stuff backed up. If you had your stuff backed up, it wouldn't matter. Yeah. Um, and, and that's still sort of true. But when you talk when you're talking about a more sophisticated ransomware attack like that, where they've already been in your network and moved laterally, you know, mm -hmm. there's a good chance they also messed up your backups. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's that's what they love to do. And that's what makes it so hard. And that's why we see companies <clears throat> paying the ransom. And it is it is a real problem and it's not going to go away. Right. Well, because to go back to the earlier part of our conversation, again, I see those people as like they're the kind of people who 30, 40, 50 years ago would have, you know, been bank robbers or they would have just, you know, you know, they would have just robbed you on the street and been like, hey, I want your money. But now there's a way for to do that, not only from you know another house, but from another country even, and there's very low risk. Like there's the, I mean, even whether they pay the ransom or they don't pay the ransom, there's very low risk of you actually getting caught. Yeah, that's very true. Very true indeed. So, um, all right. Well, let's uh, as we start to kind of wind down. Um, let me ask you know what's on the uh, sort of immediate horizon for you, like in terms of either, you know, where are you going to be talking and presenting if you are, or, or, you know, just kind of what do you see is, you know, maybe for the remainder of 2019, you know, from a cybersecurity perspective, you know, what, what should people be paying attention to? Well, it's quite obvious, especially obvious when you were walking through the business halls in Black Hat that happy days are here again. There's massive amounts of money floating in the computer security area. Startups are getting funded left and right with the IPOs happening. CrowdStrike is now, their, their market cap is now bigger than Symantec before they were split. They're probably the biggest company in cybersecurity, public company cybersecurity by market cap, bigger than Checkpoint, which is ridiculous. Like when you look at you know how how valuations go so that that's that's clearly happening I, I do think we have some kind of a bubble happening happening right now that's that's one clear trend and when i look at the rest of the year um uh i'll be actually going to different different places for the rest of the year places where you can actually see me talk publicly include uh in uk i'll be doing a lecture at the university of kent so any of those listeners coming from kent area i'll see there see you there in the beginning of september um then i'll be in cairo for cairo security camp i'll be in amsterdam for owasp I'll be in New York for an event done uh, with with local financial people, and then maybe um, something before I go to Australia in October for CBIT, which is still running in Sydney. So uh, that's going to be uh, interesting to see. Very cool. Well, I thank you for uh, taking the time to chat, and I, I'm sorry I missed your talk at uh, Black Hat. Uh, I, I, actually, do you know, was was that recorded? Is there a recording I can watch? Yep, they'll have them available. I don't know if they're going to put it on YouTube, but they're at least selling a recording. I don't know if it's worth the money, though. Well, I have I have uh, media press access, so I, I, I don't know if I have to pay. So we'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll look into that. If you get it, Take the MP4 and post it on Pirate Bay. Don't tell anybody I told you. All right. We'll keep that just between us and you know the four or five people who are listening to this podcast. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Tony. All right. Thank you. All right. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram you can feel free to let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks, and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions you'd like to see answered in future posts.